We're going to talk today about what I'm just going to call the, the greatest threat to Christianity. You know, the, the greatest threat, I think, of Christianity is actually not atheism. It's not. The greatest threat to Christianity is not atheism. You might think it would be, that, that philosophical idea that there is no God. But I will tell you, atheism is actually, in my view, the easiest theological or philosophical argument to refute. It's actually pretty simple. If there is no God, then it's the Wild West. Meaning, literally, I can do whatever I want. Stay with me for a minute. If there is no God, then I can do whatever I want, right? If I want your truck, I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to take it. Who says I can't? There's no God. If I want your wife, I'm just going to take her. There's no moral code. If I want to be a pedophile... I can. There's no moral code. I mean, it's, it's all or nothing with atheism. It's a zero-sum game in reality. If I want your property, I'm going to take it. If you're getting in the way of my career, I can find a way to poison your coffee and find you dead without remorse because there is no God. Murder isn't murder at all. It's just removing obstacles to my career path. Now, that may sound absurd to you because if you try that argument, and by the way, in all of my years, I've never met, I'm not saying they're not out there, but in all of my years, I haven't met a single human being that if you press them and press them and press them to the end, that they will stake their life on the reality that there is no God. I haven't seen anybody that willing to go that far. So right there, my worldview is winning against yours because I will state in my life that there is a risen Savior. But what I'm telling you with atheism is that if there is no God, there are no rules. And it's not wrong to kill somebody simply because I can do what I want. But the, the comeback for that is always, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that in good conscience. No, no. Well, then we've got a major problem. If there's conscience, because conscience wasn't born in a vacuum. Conscience had to come from somewhere. If there's a such thing as conscience, then there's such thing as guilt, right? And if there's a such thing as guilt, then guilt has to come from somewhere. Because I've been around enough animals to know that when animals kill other animals, there is no remorse. They kill them, then they may eat them, right? Y'all look pretty scared at where this is going. <laughs> I'm saying to you, atheism is the easiest thing in the world to refute. Because if there is no God, then there are no rules. There may be laws, but there are no rules. But you won't find anybody, I've never met anybody that says murder is just okay. No. Because conscience tells you to. So atheism isn't the, biggest, isn't the biggest threat to Christianity. No, I think when you look at it, the biggest enemy of Christianity is what I would call just a sp spiritual blend of philosophical and, and theological worldviews. It is, in fact, what you have right now in America and what you've had for the last 20, 30, 40 years. 
The, the, the biggest threat to Christianity is that, that we basically take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and we put God's name on it and we say things like, well, I don't think God would ever this or, or I believe this or I, I believe that, you know. I, I, and so we, we end up pulling from different worldviews all together and that may be fine in a spiritually blended nation, but I can promise you the problem with that is at the end of the day, you become the authority over what is good and what is bad. Now think about that for a second. If you are the ultimate authority on what is good and what is evil, we have a major, major, major impasse with humanity. Because there's no such thing as absolute truth. So I am telling you that today, authority actually matters, and it actually matters a lot. Authority is something that has to be reconciled. And so I'm going to take you to a very pivotal moment for, for Jesus. Actually, it may, it, 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 all of these, every time I look at these, I'm going to go, is there just one pivotal moment? I, I, I'm beginning to see that his entire messiahship was pivotal moment after pivotal moment after pivotal moment. Because he was resetting the stage for what was to come in the kingdom of God. But Jesus goes into an issue about authority, and I want to pick it up there in his life. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, if you've got a Bible. Matthew chapter 16. And that's this, if you're on, if you're on a, a device, I'm on the New American Standard, NASB. And um, this is where Jesus is. He's in, he's in Caesarea Philippi. His ministry has started, and Jesus is talking to his disciples. So in Matthew chapter 16, it says, Jesus, in verse 13, Jesus came into a district of Caesarea Philippi, and he was asking the disciples, and this is just the team, right? This is the team. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Who do, who do they say I am? And, and the disciples said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. So in, in other words, hey, Jesus, there's a lot of debate on who you might be. So he said to them, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered. Now, he's not, he's not saying to Peter, hey, Peter, who do you say I am? He's saying, who do y'all? That's the southern version of the New American Standard, right? Who do y'all say that I am? And Peter jumps up and answers, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately responded back and he said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or your Bible may say uh, son of Jonah, but blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was the Christ. Did you, that, that, look, Jesus wasn't ashamed of who he was. He, he was saying, I'm, I've, got a, I've got a reason for doing the things I'm doing, and I don't want you to let this go crazy yet. So Jesus 
For the first time, for the first time, the word, you are the chosen one, is used. And he says, yep. He doesn't deny it. He, he, do, he doesn't deny who he is. You are the Messiah. Who do you say I am? And, and so what we're talking about here is an, an issue of authority. Who do you say I am? See, you have to reconcile. If you're going to make it in this world, if you're going to make it in this spiritually charged world that is full of good and full of evil, in a world that has a very real devil, in a world that has a very real enemy, in a world that has very real temptations, if you are going to make it in this world, friend, listen to me, you are going to have to reconcile that question. Who do you say I am? There's an old word. It, it, it's, uh, it sounds quite British. I, I should have had my, my, my mate, Rob Harvey, uh, say it. He, he says things like this better uh, with his Yorkshire accent than, than Jason does in his Tennessee accent. But it's, it's a British-sounding word. But for, you don't hear it that much in Christianity anymore. But I heard it a lot growing up in my early years of ministry. And it's a word called lordship. It's a word called lordship. And lordship is a is a simple discipleship concept that Jesus has full authority over every single area of your life. Jesus has full authority. He has lordship. So the, the question becomes, have you reconciled the authority of Christ over your life? Lordship. Have you, that's the question. Have you reconciled the authority of Christ over your life? That's what he was asking Peter. Hey, Peter... I know what they all say about me, but I'm asking you, and I'm asking all of you disciples, who am I? Who am I? Have you reconciled the authority of Christ over your life? That's the question in the topic at hand this morning. So let's talk for a second about why does authority matter? I mean, Jesus was quite comfortable with who he was. But the disciples were having to grow in this. Are you willing to lay it all on the line for me is what Jesus was saying to them. So why, why does this really matter? I'll tell you why it matters. It matters because if you have not, friend, if you have not reconciled, if you have not put to bed, closed the book, locked it, and taken the key and thrown it away, if you have not reconciled, that Christ is Lord over every area of your life. Let me tell you what you're bound to. Let me tell you what your destiny is going to look like. You're going to have a destiny that is full of chaos. You're going to have a destiny that's full of chaos. Your parenting will be chaos. Your job and how you handle it will be chaos. Your money will be chaos. Not, not every time, not all the time, but I'm telling you, overall, if you are going to try and share lordship, well, that's not lordship at all. That's just partnership. And I don't see anything in the Gospels that says the Son of Man came to grow partnership with you in all things related to the kingdom of God. There's no co-venturing here. So the reason that authority matters is because if you don't reconcile authority, you're bound to be tossed. Paul talks about it. James talks about it. There's many times we see in the New Testament 
that Jesus has said you must choose. James is one of my favorite passages. I, it comes up a lot in sermons, really, because it, it's meant so much to me. It's actually been kind of a, uh, it's kind of been a lighthouse, you know, a lighthouse on a, on a rocky shore. It's kind of been a, a fixed point that's kept me uh, navigating between the, the spiritual buoys to keep me out of harm's way. James 1 says this. Uh, James talks about asking for wisdom and pray. It's this, this verse centers really around prayer, but it, it very much hits home at the idea of authority. He says, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For, for that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, right? That, that man, there, there's no there is no theological dramamine that is going to help that person. Right? You ever been seasick? You know, there's just no dignified way to vomit. Right? You ever paid for a charter? And then, oh, my, my wife gets motion sickness uh, in cars and... Um, there's lots of jokes in our family about that. It's not fun. It's brutal to have to watch that. I feel so bad for her. You see, if you haven't reconciled the authority of Christ over your life, what James is saying is you're, you're going to be tossed to and fro because the, the ocean's more powerful than you are. Cultural views are more powerful than you are. Influence of friends and influence of media and influence of anything is more powerful than just any one person. So if you don't have an authority, then you are in serious, serious trouble. You're in serious trouble if you don't have the authority of Christ over your mind. I didn't say your brain, over your mind. If you don't have the authority of Christ over your mind, you know what you're going to do? You're, you're going you're to be drugged toward the unholy. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about sexual temptation. I mean just the unholy. You're going to be drugged. If, if Christ isn't Lord over how you shape, shape the world, if, if Christ isn't the lens that you put on and, and you interpret situations in life and, and how you run your business or how you operate as a mom or how you look at other students in the classroom, if, 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 you don't, if Christ isn't the frames by which you interpret life, then you're going to be tossed to and fro. You, you, you really are. A practical example would be if, if, if you have anger in your heart towards someone, that anger isn't going to self-correct. It's going to become bitterness. You ever been bitter? I have. I have. Been hurt. Something didn't go your way or maybe you got cheated or something was done. Anger will become bitterness. And the Bible says in Hebrews that bitterness, see to it that no bitter root grows in you to defile many. You see, angerness, anger that's left unchecked will become bitterness and, and bitterness will become something that defiles. But if you have the mind of Christ, then you have the ability to forgive. And if you have the ability to forgive, then there can be healing. And when there's healing, you see your heart align with God's heart. And anger doesn't have a reign over your life. 
You see, if you don't have the authority of Christ over your mind and how life shapes you, then you're going to be out of alignment. And when you're out of alignment, all sorts of chaos happens. Jesus said, who do you say I am, Peter? We're talking about authority, not just authority of the mind, but we're talking about authority of the will. What about authority of the will, right? That you have to have Jesus as, as the authority over which direction you choose to go. Because if Christ, listen to me now, if Christ isn't, if he isn't Lord over your will, not your last will and testament and where you leave all your goods, no, that is over what your deepest desires are. Your will is what you, what your deepest appetites. Your will is your deepest appetites. If your longings are not lined up under the authority of God for who do you say I am, Peter, what's going to happen to you is that you are going to chase whatever feels good in the moment. You're going to chase whatever feels good and comfortable in the moment. You're, you're going to be, you know how this manifests itself all the times in Christians' lives? It manifests itself from people. You see it all the time. It's all kinds of ways. Sometimes you see it in people that hop from one job to another constantly, looking. Maybe They're always thinking that maybe, oh, maybe, just maybe, the, the, the next chapter of their life is the chapter they've always looked for. Oswald Chambers said it this way one time. He said it, said it something like this. I, I never get it just right, but he said, Bad grammar it may be, but the truth remains, you cannot serve God where you're not at. You can't serve God where you're not at. Are you one of those people that's always thinking, oh, if I could, you, that your neck is just a little bit longer? Don't you ever, we live in Tennessee, right? You ever drive down a country road? This always fascinates me. I have seen this at least 2,217 times in my life, and I'm still fascinated by it. You will see a lush green pasture full of grass. And in that pasture, that's obviously split between two farmers own it, but it's the same grass, and yet you run a barbed wire fence down it, and every cow is sticking their neck through that barbed wire fence to eat the kind of grass in front of them that they're standing on. <laughs> right? There's just something about a barrier that says, oh, no. Maybe that fescue just tastes a little better than the fescue I'm standing on now. Right? You see, but if you don't have the authority of Christ over your life, you're always going to be short. It shows up in purchase patterns. Oh, man, we've done it, haven't we? We've all done it. Thinking if maybe we could just have this or just have that, that somehow, some way, maybe somehow, that if we could just attain this, then maybe our self worth would somehow be defined by a better net worth. And boy, that's just a recipe for disaster, isn't it? You see, if the authority of Christ isn't over your life, you're destined for chaos. So Jesus asked Peter. It's a pivotal moment in Jesus' life. He's declaring his Messiahship. And he says to Peter, who do you say, Peter, James? Who do you say 
Bartholomew, Andrew, who do you say I am? Who do you say? Have you reconciled authority in your life? The disciples, the disciples had to reconcile authority. They had to. They had to nail down, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Because you see, they were about to be sent into a world. And if they could not get this right, listen, if they could not get this right, then everything fails. I mean it. Everything implodes. Who do you say I am? If they, if, they don't, if they don't get this right, everything implodes. They had to nail down this very, very issue. And it's the same thing with you and me today, friend. If you and I, in our own personal lives, if we don't get this right, as a dad, as a professional, as a student, as a musician... As a stay-at-home mom, as a millennial, as an Xer, as a boomer, as a World War II generation, it doesn't matter what gen- If you don't get this right, then everything implodes. And if you don't believe me, watch. If you don't think this is true, this authority of Christ, that if you, because when James talks about being a double-minded man that I just showed you a minute ago, you do understand what that means, don't you? A double-minded man in the root sense of the word, if you were, and I would never ask you to do this because, well, I don't know, sometimes I need job security. So when I bring up Greek words, you need to just say, oh, that's good that he studies that stuff because I don't have time. So, so what, here's the reality of what that means in the original language of the New Testament. You know what it means? A, a double-minded person, it means two-souled. It means loyalty divided. It means that this person, the reason they don't get any word from God... And the reason they're living life in chaos like a boat that rocks left to right is because they got one foot living under their own authority and they got one foot trying to straddle the kingdom of God and Jesus just simply isn't willing to be a merger. And that's why they're rocked to and fro, two-souled. So if you don't think it applies to today's life, this issue of authority, explain to me something. I'm serious. Explain to me. Explain to me how, inside the evangelical church, we can still, in a New Testament era, still be dealing with racism. How can that be? It wasn't, but just several months ago, a church in a, in a I, I read an article about a, a great church in the Southern Baptist Convention that, that, that had, was, was pursuing a man to be their pastor. It was a pretty good-sized church, and they were pursuing a guest. This, this was within the last 24 months. This guy was, was going to be the pastor, and he was coming there for his interview and for his vote. And then when some of the people found out that this black man was married to a white woman, it all went off the rails. said, how can this be? How can this be? The last time I checked, I had no control over the color I was born. Did you? I didn't. How can this be? How can we say we love God? And the Bible tells us that you can't say you love God and hate your brother, so I'm going to be willing to love God and love most people. 
Would you want the same rule applied to you on the day that you stand before God? I wouldn't want that applied to me. So you see, if you haven't reconciled lordship over how you view humanity, then you have a lot of collateral damage. If you haven't reconciled lordship, you think it doesn't matter, then tell me this. Explain to me how in a New Testament era, the Christians all across this nation that say they carry the name of Christ are willing to have sexually active lives outside the bounds of marriage. You can't say, you can't say that covenant with God matters to you. Let me tell you, let me tell you when I first discovered this. It was, it was, it was about, actually it was about 20 years ago. Michelle and I had just become, I had just become the pastor of Belmont Heights, and, and Belmont Heights was a, uh, this is, uh, ironically, uh, it's, it's really unique and, and very much honorable to me. This is the, the second pulpit I have come behind the great Bob Norman, and it's always been something. I walk past his, his, uh, his, his picture in the chapel, and he's got kind of looking at me like Johnny Carson would look, you know, or something, and and uh, I look at that and I go, hey, boss, I sure hope I'm getting it right. He was a great man. And so I, he was a pastor of Belmont Heights in the 70s. And I came along in 2001. And, and I remember going home one day talking to Michelle about university students. And I said, I don't know what's changed. I don't know that anything ever was different. All I know is I'm seeing something different. I've got university student after university student that I'm having lunch with. And I'm discipling and I'm talking to. And one of the things I'm finding is that these young men and women are coming from really great, long-standing Christian homes. And every single one of them has had multiple sexual partners, and yet they're telling me that Jesus is Lord of their life, and I'm saying, no, he's not. No, he's not. No, he's not. Don't lie to yourself. No, he's not. No, he isn't. I love Jesus, but I steal sometimes. Is Jesus Lord of your life? I love Jesus. From time to time, I commit mild levels of embezzlement. But we have grace. No. And, and explain to me. See, if you, if, you haven't recon, if you haven't reconciled Christ over your life, you're going to get pain and chaos. And that's what happens. You see, everything hinged on who do you say I am. My entire Christian ministry life. My entire Christian life, my entire Christian ministry journey, the kingdom of God every year is less and less funded. Statistics show that, that less than 3% of the Christian church honor God with their money. I'll promise you this, though. If you lost your job today, I guarantee you you're going to be begging God for a job. I promise you you are. You're going to beg God for a career. You've got bills to pay. You've got kids to support. You want a mortgage. You, you want a home. And so I've watched time after time after time after time after time. I've watched Christians beg God for a job 
only to get one and refuse to honor him with their money. Could there be any bigger definition of idolatry? Now, am I on a rant? No. I could pick like seven. A rant is me just keep going. Because I could pick like thousands of issues. Some of them I don't want to talk about because I have control over what I talk about. And I don't want to get into my own personal life. I'd much rather deal with yours. (laughs) But it's not a rant. You see, I'm dismantling this idea that if you don't reconcile the authority of Christ over your life, chaos is what you get. Chaos is what you get. Who do you say I am? But I want to bring something to your table this morning that I'm telling you. It's not just money, and it's not just sex life, and it's not just racism, and it's not just all kinds of cultural issues that is the dismantling. No, no, everything fails if we don't have the authority of Christ over our lives because the worst possible outcome, everything I just mentioned a minute ago was domino effects. You know what the worst possible outcome is? The worst possible outcome of divided loyalty is self-deception. You're fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. You're lying to yourself. If you say that Jesus is Lord, in most places. Now, I didn't say you were perfect. I've never seen any definition in the New Testament telling me I had to pursue perfection. I mean, I had to live in perfection. I'm called to pursue righteousness. I'm not a sinner. I'm a saint. According to the Bible, by the way, I mean, unless you want to go on your own definition. According to the Bible, I'm not a sinner. According to the Bible, I'm a saint who sins. I like that better, by the way. A saint is a called out one. It's not Mother Teresa. A saint is a called out one. It's a one called to be holy. So I am a saint who sins, and if you're in Christ, you're a saint who sins too. It doesn't mean that we have perfection. It does does mean that that we pursue something. The worst outcome, if we don't resolve this issue of authority, is that we have divided loyalty. We are two-souled, and if we're two-souled, we live in our own lie. We live in our own lie. And when you lie to yourself, life becomes chaotic. So you see, the disciples had to get this right. They had to get this right. If they didn't get this right... It was going to implode. The Apostle Paul tells us, interestingly enough, that there's going to come a time in the end, toward the end, as the last days move our way, and who knows how long that will take or be. But as those days approach, and as the signs of the times funneled down, the Apostle Paul told us this. He said, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. And then he lists a whole bunch of other adjectives, greedy, malicious, gossips, all that stuff, sexual idolaters. He goes on and on and on and on and on. He says, and they will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now, I want to leave that up there for a minute. 
He says, no, I find it really interesting that the very first thing he says before materialism and before greed and before idolatry and before any other listing out of the domino effects of sin, the first thing he says that drives it all is in the end, people will be lovers of self. That is divided loyalty. That is someone that, that lives too sold. They, they pursue God on some things, but they do what they want on other things. And that's just not going to abide well with Jesus who went to the cross and came out of the grave and put a Holy Spirit into our lives. Holding to a form of godliness. And that's, that's something that I, I just... I, I, that phrase, a form of godliness, I, I can think of... Few other descriptions that describe the American evangelical epidemic. A form of godliness. Because you see, if the disciples didn't get this right, it was, it was all going to fall apart. Jesus said, what did he say? He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Look at what he says in verse 18. I say to you, Peter... Upon this confession that, that, that I am the Messiah, he wasn't saying upon you, Peter. No, no, no. He wasn't saying that at all. Upon this confession, I will build my church. I will build my church. The ecclesia is the word. It's the called out ones. Upon this rock, upon this foundation, I will build the called out ones. I will build my church. And what did he say about those very men? And what does he say about us? I am, he, Jesus made all kinds of statements about this. He said, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. I am sending you out to, to heal and to preach and to cast out demons I'm sending you out to be salt and light, but know that you're going to be hated for my namesake. Jesus told us, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. We don't, that's not really in the way we look at Jesus, really. We see Jesus as the, the, the great smiling one with, with, the, with the, the perfect hair and he was smiling. I mean, kids don't run up to like lemon-faced people. Kids loved Jesus. Sinners who were deep in sin pursued Jesus. Jesus was full of grace. But let me tell you something, friends. Jesus was never dishonest about reality when it came to sin. He was always honest about the reality of the situation. So he tells them, you're going to be beaten. You're going, you're going to be scourged. You're going to be brought to trial. And in those moments, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. No, we were being sent out. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build the ecclesia. What is the ecclesia? That's you and me. You and me. We are the ecclesia. We are the ecclesia ones. We are the called out ones. Called out from something to something. As Paul said, transferred from the kingdom of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the son that he loves. We are the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. And I'm going to tell you, the reason this mattered and the reason they had to get authority right was because you, when you look at the story and you tell him, I'm going to, he says, I'm going to build my church on this rock. Well, I can tell you, no ecclesia can survive 
on self-deception. No ecclesia, no church can survive on partial lordship because partial lordship is an oxymoron. It doesn't work. No, no ecclesia can survive on partial authority. Jesus didn't say, Behold, you will receive some power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses on Mondays and Thursdays in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other parts of the earth, maybe. He didn't qualify that. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But power doesn't come on the two-souled person. Did you hear me? Power doesn't come on the two-souled person. You will never experience the power of God if all you want is the comfort of a church. You just won't. You won't experience it because you don't want it. So Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And I'm going to tell you, no church can be formed on the stones of selfishness. No church can be formed on the stones of selfishness. No, no, no fellowship can be built on the rock of the ridiculously religious who have a form of godliness but deny its power. No demons can be defeated on a foundation of fake power. And no kingdom can be built on architectural blueprints that are flawed with infected individualism. Upon this rock, upon the authority, that's where he's going to build his church. And friend, listen to me. If you don't reconcile the lordship of Jesus over your life, you're going to be tossed to and fro and to and fro. You're going to live life and it's going to be good at some times, and it's going to be a train wreck in others because you don't know what to believe. The greatest danger of Christianity is a form of godliness that denies the power of the Godhead. And if you do that, if you live the two-souled life, let me tell you, You'll live your entire life thinking something. You'll live your entire life thinking you had redemption when all you really had was religion. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.